Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, to chapter 2, verse 5 in the English Standard Version. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The word of the Lord. So this is my radio voice. I, I'm, I'm struggling through a cold, so I would appreciate if you just bear with me today. It is in the wisdom of God to see fit to uh, deliver the word of God to you, especially through an obvious weakness today. But I think that's how God is glorified. That's his little secret. We're going to do a series this Advent that we did a year ago also, Songs of Advent. We're taking themes that you find in classic Christmas carols that some of you have probably sung most of your life. And we're going to expand on those themes going to explore what the Bible has to say about these themes that are, that are just folded into these carols that you may sing and not even realize what you're singing about. We sang today, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's a Latin hymn from the early 1700s, but we sing the English translation. Actually, the hymn from the early 1700s was really based on medieval chants and plain songs. Uh, Christian antiphons that go all the way back to the 12th and 13th centuries. So it's a very old Christmas carol. And actually, there's one, there's one stanza that I wanted to focus on today. O come thou wisdom from on high, and order all things far and nigh. To us the path of knowledge show... And cause us in her ways to go. I wanted to talk about what Paul in 1 Corinthians seems to be so concerned of. Wisdom. 
Let me just ask you a question because I'm really curious as, as I speak today. I'm curious to know where you're coming from. When you think of wisdom, who do you think is wise? When you think of a wise person, who comes to mind? And there's no wrong answer. This is a judge-free zone. Who is wise? What do you think? Teachers are wise. <clears throat> Did I hear parents? Okay. Oh, your pastor. Um, and and you, can, you can also talk about specific people. Um, yeah. Grandparents. Yeah. Solomon, Solomon was known throughout the world for his wisdom and his knowledge. Who else? What are some other people we all know? Yeah, Ethan. <laughs> the three wise men. Or as we like to say from where I'm from, the three wise guys. So the Magi from the East. Okay, yeah. I've always greatly admired Blaise Pascal. Blaise Pascal. Okay. Interesting. A philosopher and a Christian and, and a wise man. Okay. Thank you. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Your husband is wise. Praise God. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. So Dan quoted Job, the book of Job. Uh, the fear of the Lord is wisdom and understand. To shun evil is understanding. Thank you. A couple of other. Who's wise? R.C. Sproul is wise. Okay. The teacher and theologian. Yeah. Your brother is wise. So we actually know of wise people in history and we actually know some wise people. Any other thoughts come to mind? Can, oh, <laughs> even imaginary people can be wise. Gandalf the Grey is wise, and Gandalf the White was wiser still. Uh, and the author, Tolkien, was wise. She said, only because Tolkien was wise. Very good. And C.S. Lewis. <laughs> Lewis is wise. Well, if you're going to, no, just kidding. Very good. Thank you. You can. You can glean from art and from literature, from stories, from music, too. Uh, you can glean an individual's, not only their knowledge, but their wisdom. Thank you. What is wisdom? Let me see where you're coming from here. What is wisdom? If, if your child or your grandchild wanted to ask you, or a, a young person, what is wisdom, what would you tell them? Somebody said the fear of the Lord. Somebody said experience. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Experience paired with knowledge. Okay. Yeah. Skill. Skill. Yeah, skill in life. Thank you. Yeah. Maturity. Wisdom is maturity. Any other thoughts? Yeah. Perspective. Yeah, one more. Wisdom is learning from your mistakes and learning from the mistakes of others. Thank you. Good thoughts, everybody. Doug Stewart, if you're familiar with the book, Reading the Bible for All It's Worth, 
Doug wrote half of it. Doug Stewart was one of my Hebrew professors in seminary, and he said uh, that an Old Testament understanding of wisdom, the way the ancient Hebrews understood wisdom, was something like this. The ability to make the right choice. Wisdom in a situation is the ability to know what is right and to do it. Now, there are, we have a lot of choices to make, don't we? Every day. We have innumerable choices that we have to make. And some of the choices we have to make, we can manage them. They're really easy. Like, are we going to have tacos for dinner or pizza for dinner? Okay. Um, some choices that we deal with are a little bit more complicated and are harder to manage. Like, where should I study? Where should I earn a degree? How should I discipline my child? Who should I marry? How should I take care of my aging parent? What should I get my pastor for Christmas? These are really tough questions, difficult issues. And if you really want to know that, I'm just kidding. I have a list on my Facebook page. No, just kidding. Some choices we cannot manage at all. The Bible tells us that left to our natural condition as human beings, we will always choose to reject God. In general, in our lives, or in specific instances and conflicts and challenges, left to our natural state, we will always choose to reject God's presence and wisdom and truth. So wisdom, in its purest sense, according to biblical teaching, is unattainable without knowing God. So when we, when we sing these words, O come thou wisdom from on high, and to us the path of knowledge show and cause us in her ways to go, we can believe that Jesus Christ came to give us knowledge of our creator. That Jesus came to give us the gift of knowing God. Truly Knowing him. You can know about a person, but you can know a person. Jesus came to give us the gift of knowing our creator. Now, biblical knowledge and wisdom are really inseparably linked to knowing God. You read the Bible, wisdom and knowledge, uh, they are inseparable uh, from knowing the creator. Let me distinguish wisdom from knowledge from a biblical perspective. Knowledge is what you know. Wisdom is knowing what to do with what you know. Knowledge is what you know. You can have a lot of it or very little of it. Wisdom is knowing what to do with what you know. Knowledge and wisdom in the Bible are inseparably linked to knowing God. And the Apostle Paul felt... That when he began writing this letter to the church in Corinth, which he had planted and he had pastored and, and shepherded earlier in his life, he decided that they needed to be reminded as a congregation that wisdom and knowledge are inseparably linked to knowing God. But before I talk about what Paul had to say to the Corinthians, I want to give you a little bit of a biblical background on wisdom and knowledge. Some of you, most of you are familiar with uh, our very beginning. As a, as a race. 
God said to Adam and, and Eve, the earth is yours. It's for you. And you know what? You can eat any, any plant you want. All these wonderful trees. You can eat all this vegetation. Uh, I want you to stay away from this one tree. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, we're told in Genesis chapter 2. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then Satan, Satan literally means adversary. And Satan came along and, and said to Adam and Eve, this is a paraphrase. You can read Genesis 1 through 3 and get all the, all the details. Satan came along and this is what he did. Uh, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God. Knowing good and evil. And the rest, you know what happened. They ate the fruit. Uh, they chose Satan's way and not God's way. And the rest is history. And here we are today. Before human sin. So before the fall, we had the opportunity, Adam and Eve, had the opportunity to learn knowledge by obedience. Knowledge was learned, was accumulated through obedience. In fellowship with their creator. After the fall. After sin came. We ever since then. We seek knowledge. Through rebellion. Alienated from our creator. So we're still learning. We have an amazing capacity to learn. And to acquire knowledge. And to dispense and distribute. And act upon our knowledge. Profound. But sin affects our knowledge. Sin affects what we know, how we understand what we know. And sin affects especially what we do with what we know. So the teacher in the book of Proverbs says, and some of you mentioned this earlier when I asked you, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 1 and Proverbs 9. But at the time that Christians uh, congregated uh, through the ministry of the Apostle Paul, uh, people became Christians in the Greco-Roman port town, bustling little successful city of Corinth. Wisdom meant something else to the Greek thinkers, to the Roman thinkers. Uh, to Gentiles living in the Mediterranean world, wisdom meant something else. Wisdom meant, uh, during Paul's day, wisdom meant having a higher knowledge. It meant having the kind of knowledge that set you apart from everybody else around you. And wisdom also meant having the ability to communicate what you knew powerfully and eloquently. So in, in, in the day that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians... The Corinthian mindset was the Greek mindset, the, the Greco-Roman mindset of the Mediterranean world. Wisdom is having a higher knowledge, and wisdom is being able to effectively communicate it. And the more you knew, and the better you were at communicating what you knew, the more of a following you would get. And people began to say in the Corinthian church, hey, I follow Paul. And others would say, hey, I follow Apollos. And others would say, 
I follow Jesus as if Jesus were just like any other philosopher and any other rabbi and any other teacher. And he could have a following too. So they began to look like their culture and it caused divisiveness and factions within the church, which is ultimately why Paul writes this letter to them. And when Paul asks them, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? It it was as if he were saying to us in our language, where is the entertainer? Where is the movie star? Where is the politician? Where is the professor? Where is the vlogger or the blogger of this age? The ones who have the most followings, you know, the, the, the the most likes next to all of their tweets, who follow them most on Facebook. Where are these people today? They've missed out on what God is doing. So Paul confronts this idea by saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, in verse 22 through 24, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And what Paul is doing here is tackling two predominant mindset, the two dominant mindsets of the day, the Jewish conception of power and the Gentile conception of wisdom. So for, for the Greek mind, right, for the, in the Gentile world, to hear that the king of kings, the king of the universe, was executed as a criminal of the state, a criminal of Rome, under Pilate, under Caesar, to hear that somehow that was the kingdom of kings, the king of kings, that somehow that man was God's king, that was absolute foolishness. And the word Paul uses here for foolish is, it's moros. It's where we get the word moron from. So it was absolutely absurd uh, to the Gentile mindset to think that Jesus of Nazareth was God's true king. The Jews on the other hands were on the other hand were waiting for their Messiah to come and deliver them in strength and power from who? The Romans. Right? First it, it the Babylonians and the Medians and the Greeks and now the Romans. So it's it's been several centuries of hard going for the Jews and and they're waiting for a Messiah to come and liberate them. So for their Messiah to be crucified, to be hung on a Roman cross, when they knew from the book of Deuteronomy that anyone is cursed by God who hangs on a tree, it was scandalous to them. And the word Paul uses for saying that Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews, the word for stumbling block, it's a Greek word, skandalos. It's where we get the word scandal. It, the cross scandalized the Jews. It was embarrassing to them that their king had come and got himself crucified by the Romans. The cross as a symbol of faith gives us the warm fuzzies. It's because we've never seen somebody crucified. 
But to the Jews and eventually the Christians of the first century, they knew what everybody else in the world knew, that the cross was a symbol of shame and humiliation. So to Gentiles, it was pure folly. It was madness. And to the Jews, it was scandalous embarrassment. It was a stumbling block. And so what Paul is doing here is he's tackling, he's working against the two pervading idols of the culture of the time. As one scholar puts it, a demand for power and an insistence on wisdom. Gentiles insisted on pure reason. That's going to solve That's going to solve the world's problems. And the Jews were looking for power to liberate them. And Paul's tackling both of those issues. He's coming against both of them. What I find so interesting, this is just my own personal observation in our own day, but our previous president and our current American president together embody these two ideas. Our previous president was regarded. Now, this is just my own personal opinion because I don't at all intend to get political. Our previous president uh, has been regarded publicly as eloquent, as poised, as intelligent, an Ivy League scholar, a man of wisdom. Our current president has been regarded publicly as wealthy and tough and effective and resourceful, a guy who gets things done. Isn't this interesting? That our former president and our current president embody the assumptions of our world. What we need is reason to be right and solve our problems. Or what we need is power to take care of our problems. And I say that with great respect uh, to our presidents. I'm not really dealing with political issues. But I want you to see that, that... that when we choose leaders, our leaders embody our assumptions, power, and reason. So Paul confronts these assumptions with this statement. We preach Christ crucified. God's wisdom, God's power, look nothing like what the world assumes wisdom is and what power is. Jesus, this this man who was crucified on a Roman cross, Paul is saying that is God's wisdom. That is God's power. And he's showing them that Jesus is access to understanding and knowing the Creator. If you want to understand the wisdom of God, you must know Jesus. If you want to understand the power of God, stop looking at your leaders. Stop looking at the people of this age, the people who have the most follows on Facebook and the most, the most tweets liked, and the people who have the most influence in government and in media, the gatekeepers of your culture. Look away from that and look at a man hanging on a cross. That is the wisdom of God. That's the power of God. Know Jesus, you'll know God. To know your creator, however, through Jesus, you must also know yourself through Jesus. It's not enough to just know God through Jesus. You have to allow Jesus and his crucifixion to allow you to reinterpret yourself 
and how you see yourself. And Paul gives evidence of this. Wisdom is gained as we know ourselves through God's wisdom. He gives them two reminders. His first reminder is verse 26 of Corinthians chapter 1. Now consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So in our own language, he's saying, look, regarding your education, regarding your influence, regarding your status, none of you are really, very few of you are a really big deal. That's what he's saying to them. And that's what he's, the Holy Spirit through Paul is saying to us. When you all think, when we all think of our education, and when we all think of our background and our actual influence in the world, we're all ordinary people here. Maybe a couple of us are not. Because apparently some affluent people have become Christians. But most of us, we're just ordinary people, is what Paul is saying. There's another reminder, though. He talks about himself. When I came to you, he refers back to the time that he first came to Corinth. And if you read Acts chapter 18, Paul was kind of overwhelmed about bringing the gospel. We don't know why. But after he left Athens, he ends up in Corinth and he was overwhelmed by bringing the gospel to Corinth to the point where Luke tells us in Acts 18 that Jesus ministered to Paul and told him to not to not be afraid. But Paul reminds them, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He's saying, I didn't come to you like the philosophers and smart people and influential people of our age. I didn't come with big, eloquent, fancy, creative talk. He said in verses 4 and 5, My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Is Paul saying he was stupid? No. He was very intelligent. He was very learned. Now, I think Paul on purpose didn't, didn't say to the Corinthians, I could boast if I wanted to, because that was their problem. But if you read Philippians, that's exactly what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. If I really wanted to, I could brag, because I've got quite a resume. But Paul's point here is to say, if my goal is to gain a following, we lose everything. If my goal is to gain a following, to be influential, to have that sway over people, then we all lose everything because now you're not going to hear the truth of God. You're not going to hear the gospel of salvation. You're going to hear me speaking eloquently. And what you need to hear is Christ crucified because that's your salvation. If my message and my ministry or if your work and your lifestyle become about you, like if my preaching and pastoring become about me, we lose Christ. And he says earlier, the cross of Christ is emptied of its power when it becomes about me or you. So why is Paul doing this? Why is Paul reminding these people, hey, you're not really a big deal? And why is Paul reminding them, listen, I'm really not a big deal? Okay, people are... People are, are proud of their eloquence and their influence in culture. And we all want to follow these cool people. And, and, and keep checking up on what they're saying on their tweets. And watch their movies and quote them. 
Uh, and then you argue with one another about who's right based on who's reading what and who follows who. And who voted for who? And, and now we're all arguing with one another. But Paul says, hey, none of us are all that special in worldly terms. And when I came to you, I didn't act all that special in worldly terms. Why is he doing this? Because of what he said back in verses 28 and 29 of the first chapter. This is his motivation for reminding the Corinthians that by worldly standards, none of them and he were not a big deal. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So Paul is showing us God chose the foolishness and the weakness of a Roman cross to undermine our pride. God's weakness, God's foolishness, the gospel itself, the good news is, de is it's designed to undermine our pride. And the way I'm going to define pride today is to say this, pride is our penchant for thinking that we can know anything apart from God. You know what you know because of who you are and because what you've accomplished and what you've read and what people have given to you and how you were born and to whom you were born. That's how you know what you know apart from God. That's pride. The universe is king coming to us as a poor baby and a political refugee. That just looks foolish. That king then dying a criminal's death on a Roman execution cross. That's embarrassing. And then when you find out that you actually deserved that death. That he hung there for. That's outrageous. That's just outrageous. That you belonged up there and not him. So it's foolish it's embarrassing. It's outrageous. But God's wisdom is designed to undermine your pride. Somebody mentioned Gandalf earlier today, and I'm glad she did. Uh, because I'm not going to be talking about a Christmas movie today. Normally, I start talking about Christmas carols, and I start talking about It's a Wonderful Life and, and things like that. We'll wait for, a we'll wait for next week. I'm going to talk about the Lord of the Rings. Sorry if you don't know about the Lord of the Rings. I'll try and make it simple. So all the learned people of Middle Earth get together and say, this big bad guy, Sauron, is taking over and we can't stop him. And there's this little ring and he wants this little ring. Everybody wants this little ring. Everybody, the whole world has gone crazy over this ring. How are we going to keep it away from him? And all these wise people they have this big debate on what they should do. And they discover that the best thing would be to just get rid of it, to destroy it. So he can't have it, and so nobody can have it. And they start arguing. Well, one person says, I should take the ring and destroy it. No, you really shouldn't because of who you are and where you're from. I should take the ring and destroy it. And somebody even says, no, wait a minute. Let's keep the ring and use it against him. 
And then finally, little Frodo, the hobbit, who just loves hanging out at home and reading and eating, he stands up and says, I'll take the ring. I'll go and destroy it. And Sam says, well, I'll go too. And Elrond, the wise, says this. This is the hour of the Shire folk when they arise from their quiet fields to shake the towers and councils of the great. Who of all the wise could have foreseen it? Or if they are wise, should they expect to know it until the hour has struck? And so it's a beautiful, story, a beautiful picture from Tolkien of how the world's wisdom is confounded by what seems weak and foolish and nonsensical. Because in his pride, the great evil enemy of Middle-earth, because of his intelligence and his power and his resources, he couldn't see the simplest, most mundane, most uneventful answer to the question. And it was his pride uh, in the end that was his undoing. He couldn't see a little hobbit walking into his backyard and getting rid of his great prize. In his pride, he couldn't perceive the simplest, weakest thing. And that is how God uses the gospel of Christ crucified. Jesus defeated sin and Satan and accomplished our reconciliation with his father on the cross. And because of the cross and because of an empty tomb, God is redeeming the world. God is redeeming humanity. God is redeeming culture and art and sexuality and our identity and our politics and justice and government. It may not seem that way when you read the news, but through you, if you're a Christian, through you and through us, God is making all things new. But it begins with God hanging on a cross. And this is why Paul says, God chose what's weak to the world and foolish to the world so that nobody can boast. The gospel undermines our pride and gives us no reason to boast. When you see that Jesus is on a cross and you belong there and there is nothing you can do, there is nothing you could do to change that. To appease God's wrath against you, his good, righteous wrath against your rebellion, against your pride for knowing who you are because of who you are and where you're from and how you think and how you're educated and not wanting God, not seeking his wisdom, but leaning on your own wisdom, leaning on your own understanding in all your ways, acknowledging yourself and not acknowledging him. That's why Jesus hung on a cross. The wisdom of God became a human being and hung on a cross for those who refused to know their creator and seek knowledge for the glory of their creator by the grace of their creator. The cross abolishes any need to boast or brag or to have a superiority complex about who we are and how we cook and what our holiday traditions are and and what we read and what we think about life and business and politics and art, the gospel tells us you, you, can't, you can't brag about any of that. Because if you know anything, it is because of the grace of God revealed to you in Jesus. Let him who boasts 
boast in the Lord, is what Paul says, quoting the Old Testament prophet. So Gordon Fee, uh, the New Testament scholar, has a great little summary of everything Paul's been saying. And I want to read it to you. So you think the gospel is a form of Sophia? Sophia means wisdom. Sophia was, what I said earlier, having a higher knowledge. Having the kind of knowledge and being able to talk and communicate that knowledge in a way that just seems impressive. Being able to influence the people around you. Okay, so let me try it again. You think that the gospel is a form of Sophia? How foolish can you get? Look at its message. It's based on the story of a crucified Messiah. Who in the name of wisdom would have dreamed that up? Only God is so wise as to be so foolish. Furthermore, look at its recipients, yourselves. Who in the name of wisdom would have chosen you to be the new people of God? Finally, remember my own preaching. Who in the name of wisdom would have come in such weakness? Yet, look at its results. What's the power of God? What's the power of God in the context of Christ crucified? Paul says he came in weakness with not, without eloquence, but what? In a demonstration of the spirit and of power. The power of God was evident in Corinth by the fact that people became Christians and were converted. The power of God revealed itself in the fact that people hear this message of a crucified Messiah and believe. And confess their sin and give up knowing everything apart from God and only knowing themselves and the world in light of who God is through his son, Jesus. The power of God takes people and changes them so that they can look at a crucified Jesus and say, yes, that is the power of God. That's what the world needs. Yes, that's the wisdom of God. That's what the world needs to understand. That's the power of God. And the cross of Christ can change your heart. So the proof of the gospel's wisdom and power is a changed life. And you start to discover that you're becoming a humble person. Uh, because you're thankful. And you don't argue as much with people. Even if you're right, you don't argue as much. You're willing to associate with people who are lower than you. You're not embarrassed by that. You're not repulsed by that. You're not embarrassed to be around people who seem to be higher up on the social ladder than you are. And you're not embarrassed to associate with people who are several, several rungs below you. <laughs> it even makes your Christmas meals with your relatives more enjoyable. True wisdom is knowing a gift when you see one. True wisdom is receiving God's gift and not forgetting that it's a gift. You know, we receive the gospel when you become a Christian and then you go through life and the world, get, the world just crushes you and you start forgetting that it was a gift. And you start believing, I did this. I'm a... I'm a good person. I'm righteous. I'm a child of God. I'm a leader in my church. I'm an exemplary business person or teacher. 
I'm the most well-behaved in my family. I get great grades. I have a good record. People like me. People follow me on Facebook. People like my tweets and always enjoy my Instagram photos. Life's going really well. And then we start to think, wow, this salvation of mine is just look at me. Look at what I'm doing. And we forget that it's a gift. It was always a gift and it will always be a gift. Receive it now for the first time. Receive the wisdom of God and the power of God. And if you've already received it, well, remember this Christmas. Remember it's a gift and you didn't earn it. And you receive it. The power of God and the wisdom of God disarms your pride and allows you to humbly see Jesus and receive him as a gift of God's grace. And man, that is that is liberating because now you don't have to try and study thinking that you're isolated from God. Now you can study and you can teach and, and you can mentor and disciple one another and work and build and create. You're not isolated from God trying to do this anymore, trying to do it on your own. You don't have to be impressive and knowledgeable and win every argument and get the degree and make more money. You're doing all that on your own. You can now do all of those things knowing you belong to your creator. And as long as you have your eyes on Jesus, you know who your creator is. And you know what he says power is. And you know what he says wisdom is. And the stuff you're trying to get and work towards The world's impressed by that. God's not. And the proof is Jesus on the cross. So be liberated from your search to make this life about what you can do and what you can achieve and what you can get and what people, because of all of that, will think of you. Let's forget about that. And remember that salvation, that knowing God, that status before God was a gift that was achieved by Jesus not us, we receive it. And that is truly liberating. So this Christmas, let's re-examine the things we boast about. Some people are extrovertedly uh, uh, braggarts and everybody knows they brag. Some of us, we don't brag out loud, we brag in here, okay? Either way, this Christmas, let's start re-examining the things we brag about and take pride in. Let's re-examine them in the light of the wisdom of God and the power of God seen in a cross. And may we have a Merry Christmas. Let's pray. O come thou wisdom from on high and order all things. Teach us how to see our lives and our world from the lens of your wisdom, Father, of your cross. To us, the path of knowledge show. Give us wisdom to know how to interpret our knowledge, to know what to do with what you've taught us and what we've achieved already. Father, make us wise for salvation. And we praise you for our Savior, Jesus who showed us the path of wisdom and of knowledge. In his name we praise you. Amen.